back to the big picture of what God's doing in all history. Um, so the main thing that I want you to remember as you look at your passage um, is why is this passage so important? Why is this relevant passage for a Christian to know? We know that all scripture is God-breathed, right, and it's useful. So what about this passage? Well, the why of this passage is I want you to remember that God is at work. God has been at work from the beginning. God is at work in this passage, and God is at work today. So even when it seems like God has forgotten you, or even when it seems like he has deserted you, remember that his promises are always true, and he will always be faithful. He is active, and so he is waiting. He's calling us to wait for him, to act. And sometimes that waiting seems long, and we don't always see the full fruits of it, but the waiting is always worth it, because his goodness is always better than we could have imagined. So turn with me, we're going to pray, and we'll turn to our passage. Most Heavenly Father, we um, come before you just humble, acknowledging our position uh, before you. Father, we know that you are the God of all the universe. We know that you have orchestrated all things, that there's nothing that has escaped uh, your mind and your plan, Lord. There's nothing that has taken you by surprise. There's nothing that we can do that can take you by surprise. And so, Father, I thank you for your uh, omniscience, for your um, knowledge, for the fact that we can trust you. And so this morning, Lord, there is no different. Uh, we are very fallible creatures. We think about ourselves too much. We neglect your word. And so I pray that this morning would just be a reminder for us to humble ourselves before your mighty hand, that we would see you as the one who's mighty in contrast with our unmightiness, Father, that we would see your word as the one who's trustworthy, reliable, and true, unlike our own word, and that we would see that it is good and worth it for us to wait on you to act. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your passage. So before I start, I just want you to take a look at this passage. 925, the end of 925, chapter 10. If you look at chapter 10, you see a lot of names, right? You see a lot of places, uh, things you may not know how to pronounce. Um, and so what I want to tell you is Genesis 9 here, we're ending, again, we're going back to Noah, we're ending the Noah narrative, and then Genesis 10 is outlining, out, outlining Noah's descendants. So remember, from the beginning, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them a command to fill the earth, right? Multiply, fill the earth. And Adam and Eve started doing that. People started growing, and then we see the wickedness growing. And God's judgment comes upon the people, and he, you know, he destroys everything. Everything that's destroyed, the whole earth is judged by a worldwide flood. And now we're basically starting over, right? God's judgment comes, and now what God is doing is he's doing the same thing. Genesis 9:1. he tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Again, same command. God is effectively starting over with Noah and his family. And so chapter 10 is going to be a recounting of how God is filling and repopulating the earth and being good to it. So what's the overarching point? Again, big picture. What's the overarching point of chapter 10 as we look at it? Well, I want you to see and I want you to learn that God, um, I don't want you to lose sight, that God is restoring the earth after that terrible judgment. Okay, the destruction that God brought about in 7 through 8 was great, was all-encompassing, right? And now God begins to undo that judgment and begins to fill the earth with living creatures and that land that was once barren and with no life 
now returns to be full of life, and God begins to fill it with his creatures. So God is restoring what he was once decimated. And I want you to see that this is a pattern. This is a pattern of how God acts. This is not the only time in Scripture that God does the same thing. This is how he, does, how he acts towards his creatures. Because God is able to bring good even from great chaos. Even when there's nothing else that seems to be alive, God can bring much good. And we see this, right, in creation. From the very beginning of creation, the whole world was dark. There was a void. And God from that brings things that are good. Okay? God brings from a chaos, from a void, he brings good things, brings life. We know, we know from Noah that God is capable of great, great judgment, and we should fear him. We see that in the flood. But at the same time, I don't want you to just have a view of God that all he does is discipline and discipline and judge and judge because towards his people, yes, he disciplines us, but he's also kind with us in restoring to us and bringing us to himself. And that's what I want you to focus on this morning. He can restore and even bring more good than was there before that was previously possible. So this morning, if you feel like God's discipline is upon you, remember that he will not forsake his people. He will restore them if only you would turn to him. Let me give you an illustration. So um, illustration is my, my father-in-law, he, um, he owns and he manages, you know, like 300 acres um, just east of Bedford. And he spends a lot of time down there just getting it ready, preparing it, cutting down trees, making, basically making sure that the land is flourishing. And so if you want the land to flourish from time to time, sometimes counterintuitively, intuitively, what you have to do, one of the best things that you can do is do a controlled burn. So you actually start a fire in your property, and you start a fire, and that fire is you know, just a little fire. It's a big fire. It consumes everything that's on its path, killing everything effectively that's there. And you think, well, how on earth is that going to help the land? Like, aren't you killing everything? You, know, so you are killing everything, but you're actually bringing, preparing the soil to be able to bring forth the good fruit that was supposed to be there. So native plants are encouraged to grow. And so the land is actually able to flourish more than it was before the fire. So in a similar way, I want you to see that God can bring fire, can bring judgment. But he can use that for good, and after bringing that for good, actually make you and his people flourish. This happens throughout in Scripture. So let me read you Joel, and here, it'll be here in the passage, Joel chapter 2, 23 to 26. This is in the context of God's judgment when uh, Israel had been exiles, right? And this is what God says. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Again, even in the midst of exile, when God has sent his people away to be judged, to be slaves, God can still say, I have dealt wondrously with you. I will restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. So this is how God works in us. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you this morning? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, how could God ever use me? If you only knew all that I've done, all my sins in the past, all the ways in which I've actually failed against God, even knowingly failed God, 
can God really restore and use a sinner like me? Can God redeem years that have been wasted on myself? Well, when you're tempted to think that, right? Think of Paul. Here's an example of God restoring the years. How could God redeem the years of somebody that was actively persecuting the church? Well, God does that, and then he does more, right? He uses Paul in great ways for his kingdom. So I want you to know, church, God is not limited by your sin. It's not like all of a sudden you sin and God can no longer act. God will act. He may judge you and bring you to flourishing, but God will act, and he is at work. And so he can take a great sinner like yourself and use him or her for his glory. So turn to him. Turn to him. Or maybe it's different for you. Maybe you're in a season right now that is really difficult. Maybe you're in a season when it feels like God's hand is upon you for one reason or another, where everything is decaying, where everything is faltering, where life seems to be falling apart. How could God redeem a season like that? Maybe every day is filled with suffering, right, with sickness, with uncertainty. And you ask yourself, what good could God bring from this? Every day seems to be wasted. Well, when things just seem to be getting worse and worse, and the earth has been marred and decimated, well, how is, what is God doing? How is God at work? Think of Job. In a moment, think of Job, right? That's another example that we have. God's hand upon him, you know? He was not even of, of his own. This is a picture of how God in Job can restore the years that Job had lost. Okay? Job lost everything that he held dear. Everything was taken from him. And so when disaster hits you, when sickness hits, remember that what has just as God took everything that Job held dear and Job held on to the Lord afterwards, God blessed him even more, even more. The end of Job, it's not up there, but I just want to read you and see. And it's, the end of Job ends this way. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. Again, we're not saying we're going to trust God because he's going to make us prosper twice more later. But we're saying he is capable of restoring. That's what I want you to see. He is capable of taking this season that you're in and turning it for his good and for your good. And I want you to see that he is the only one that can do this. You cannot do this. You cannot turn your life around. When your life is in chaos, the only thing that you can bring is more chaos into it. And so would you just relinquish that and say, God, I will trust you and I will follow you and I will do what you're calling me to do and trust in him, not in any other. So in a season like those, wait, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Remember, God said that he would fill the earth. He didn't do this in a day. He didn't do this in a year. Okay? It took generations for the earth to begin filling up. But he was faithful. And so in the same way, we are called, big picture, to wait on our God to act. So that's the big picture, right? God um, dealing with his people after the flood, even kindly. So now let's look smaller picture. Let's actually work through chapter 10. Uh, so let's begin with chapter 10, 1 through 5. And God's word reads, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some sons were born to them after the flood. So first we have the son of Noah, Japheth, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. 
the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodadim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with its own language by their clans and their nations. Um, this all comes to a point, okay? So just follow along. I think one question to ask yourself is like, whenever I get to a place like this in the Bible, like, what do I do? Like, what can I learn from this? You, if you're like me, usually you just kind of move on, right? I just want you to see how much is in God's word. Okay, so we are told, what are we told? We're told, here's one of uh, Noah's sons, Japheth. Uh, we're told earlier that he's one of the sons who honored his father, right? And we know that his sons began spreading along the coastal regions. And that's really about as much as we hear about Japheth. We really don't know that much from this passage about who Japheth is and his sons. Um, but from the here, uh, it is typically considered that the descendants of Japheth are the ones who settled in the coastlands, Greece, Macedonia, eventually into the regions of Germany, Spain, and much of Europe. Okay, so the sons of Japheth came and spread to the coastal regions. Again, we don't learn that much about Japheth. But interestingly enough, we learn a lot more about Ham. Again, not a ton, but about Ham and the descendants of Ham. Let's read 6 to 20. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush, father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneth, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rasin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt father Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Patrasim, Kashluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan, father Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Remember those. We'll come back to those. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, and as far as Lashan. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Okay, we, interestingly, we get a lot more detail about Ham, right? Again, not a lot, especially we get a lot of these about Nimrod. Um, we're going to even get more as we work through the Old Testament. As you read, some of these people groups kind of sound a little familiar because they come into play in the rest of the Israel's history. And so, what we learn, though, one of the things that we learn is that Ham's lineage is not really a godly lineage. His lineage is not a godly lineage. Though there were many men, here we see Nimrod, we see great cities, great men in great cities who did greatly impressive things and built very impressive kingdoms for themselves, the sons of Ham really are mostly known as enemies of God. And we're going to see this again as we come back to it. But let's, for now, let's just take Nimrod, right? Because we're giving a lot more um, specifics on Nimrod and who he is. So um, Nimrod... God's word tells us that he was the first man on earth to be a mighty man. First man on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
Now, I remember when, uh, when Megan and I were thinking of names for kids, you know, we're, you know, I forget if it was with Santiago or with Sofia, and we're like, well, if we have a boy, what name should we pick? And it's like, man, wouldn't it be cool, like, Nimrod? Like, he was a great man, you know, wouldn't that be just a good connotation to, like, have your kid be? And it's like, man, if only Nimrod just didn't have such a bad connotation, I would definitely name my child Nimrod, right? Like, because I want my kid to be great. I want him to do great things. So... Uh, if only for that, you know, I would consider naming my son after him. I mean, think about the way that he's described like a great, a mighty man. I mean, how many of us wouldn't want to be described as that? Go in history and be known and remember as the great, mighty man, a great hunter before the Lord. Our hearts really in many ways aspire towards greatness. And that's the problem. And that's where our problem really lies. We're all the same in that we all want greatness. We all want to be remembered. The problem is that God did not call us to be great and mighty in the eyes of man. God did not call us to be great and mighty, but that is our temptation, right? All of us, when we read that, you know, if you're like me, you're like, man, that's how I want to be remembered. I want to be great. I want to be remembered for being able to be as good as something as Nimrod was a hunter, to be great and mighty. But Nimrod was not a good guy. Nimrod was not a good guy. Okay, he is remembered as mighty, but not in the eyes of the Lord. And I want you to see right there, what is the path, verse? Um, verse 9, where he says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Don't take this as he was a mighty hunter for God. In fact, it's usually seen negatively. Throughout history, it's always been uh, described negatively. It's almost like it's saying he was a great mighty hunter in the face of God. Like he exalted himself to a place. He was so skillful, he was so mighty that he said, I am almost like God a great and mighty hunter like God, before God, in the face of God. So he was not a good guy. And if you are trying to be like, well, what, how can you draw that conclusion from such so little? Well, just even look at the fruits of his kingdom, right? The fruits of his conquest and of his greatness. I mean, would you want to be known as the, li- as the leader of Babel? We saw that uh, last week, right? That does not end very well. Would you want to be known as the leader of Nineveh? What do we know about Nineveh? Right, Jonah, the city of great wickedness. This is the fruit of the man in his conquest. Nimrod is not a guy that is worthy of our admiration, but it's so easy for us to do so, right? Joel gave us a very good and sober warning last week to be careful, to be very careful, to be on guard, that we don't seek to make a name for ourselves. And so I'm not going to belabor that point, but I do think that that warning bears repeating for us this morning as we look at our text. In Genesis 10, Often, and this is just an example of what we see in our own lives, God allows his enemies to flourish. God oftentimes allows his enemies to build great cities and great kingdoms, and their names are great and known. But that is not what the Christian ought to strive for. The Christian is not here on earth seeking to be great and mighty. The Christian does not act in order to be remembered or to be esteemed highly. That is not the highest aim of a Christian. The Christian is not constantly comparing himself or herself to family, to friends, to demonstrate superiority over them. The Christian ought to be content with a low and unremarkable, humble position. Right? We'll see this again, Japheth, right? We don't know that much about him. And we'll see that he was actually a man who was blessed by God. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But one example, and I want, maybe one way you can think about this is that you do this. And I want you to kind of prepare you and caution you. All of us, during Thanksgiving, we're going to, you know, there's 
big temptations during Thanksgiving. One of them is your own family, your own friends that maybe you haven't seen in a while. And I want you to fight the temptation to compare your successes with your family members, with your friends. And it's so easy for us to do. Fight that temptation when it's, you know, oh, Billy has done this. What have you been doing? Don't seek to try to make your name great even then at the dinner table. Fight that. Also, fight. Fight the pride that comes up when we talk about with non-Christians about how great our reputation is. There's no need for them to look up to you. Fight the pressure. Fight the pressure of parents and of peers. When you have the opportunity to rise in the corporate ladder at the expense of better things, fight that because your heart is not made for greatness in the eyes of man. Fight the temptation to just prove to others how great of a mother or a husband you can be. Right? There's no need for you to prove yourself before, the, before others. Simply do what God is calling you to do, even if no one else notices you, even if it's unremarkable and you're never remembered. Why? Because it does not matter if man remembers you. God sees and God knows. And that is what matters. Don't seek to be like Nimrod, bringing attention to yourself. Like Moses, our desire here as a church, we should desire to be mistreated with the people of God instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures that come with sin in Egypt. So that is Ham. Ham is um, his descendants, Canaan specifically, uh, enemies of God. Now, Shem. What about Shem? Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad father Shelah, and Shelah father Eber. Eber were, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan father Amadad, Shelef, Hasamer Bavith, Jerah, Haduram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So Shem, what do we learn about Shem? Not that many specifics, right? It's interesting that we know how great and mighty Ham is, and yet the sons of Japheth, the sons of Shem, in many ways are kind of left to obscurity. Again, a reminder not to seek to be great. But we do know that Shem and Japheth were blessed. Specifically, Shem was blessed. So now, go back with me. This is where we're going to connect. Chapter 9, verse 25. Uh, let's just go verse 26. We'll come back to all of it together. But verse 26, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. There's a special blessing that even Noah, even though he did not know all the details, that even Noah foresaw Okay? that Shem would be blessed in a very special way. And so how do we know that Shem was blessed? Well, he was the father of Arpaxad, and we see this in chapter 11, right? Um, chapter 11, Shem's descendants. Shem was the father of Arpaxad. Who is that? We don't know that much about him. He was the father of Shelah. We don't know that much about him. He was the father of Eber. We don't know that much about it. And so, and so on goes Peleg and Reu and... Um, all of these in obscurity, right? Serug, Nahor, Terah, all these names, they were like, what is going on? Until we get to 
Abraham, right? Abraham. So from Shem came Abraham. So how do we know that Shem was blessed? Because his lineage was blessed. Because it was through Shem's lineage that Abraham came, and that is from where God's people came. God chose a special possession from himself, from the line of Shem, through specifically Abraham and his family. So God calls the people for himself. That is the greatest blessing you could have. And so let's step back again. Step back again. What is God doing in chapter 10? He is actually fulfilling what he said he would do in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9 with the curse and the blessing. And so he's setting the stage for the fulfillment of it all in Israel's history. And so as we look at it into a little bit more depth, I just want you to see God's word is wonderful. It, is, it harmonizes so well. There's so much to it. There's beauty in it. There's, it's worthy of you to study it and to meditate on it and to devour it. There's so much that you can do. And so I want you to treasure God's word this morning as we look at this. So 925, you're going to flip back and forth a lot if you have a Bible like mine. 925, this is Noah proclaiming a curse from God's authority. So he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. So what is the curse? The curse is that Canaan would serve his brothers. Now this is a, I'm going to come back to this. This is, I just found this so interesting. Calvin, I was reading Calvin and you know, what he said about this chapter. And, uh, so as an aside, um, he mentions that you know, this title, servant of servants, is what Canaan is called to do. Well, interestingly enough, you know who takes that title nowadays? The Pope. The Pope is called and known as the servant of servants. And the irony is that little, you know, do we think about the fact that this was given to somebody who's God's enemy. But I digress, right? Come back to what we want. Um, the point is that Canaan would be a servant to his brothers. That is the point. The curse is Canaan would serve his brothers. Let's read verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So on the one hand, we have a blessing for Shem and for Japheth. We have blessings because they were faithful to their father. And so for Shem, we see that God has a specific blessing. And that blessing is played out on Abraham. And so it's no surprise that Abraham, one of the first things that God tells him in Genesis 12, which we'll get to, is that God promises to bless Abraham. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. All of this, this blessing being played out as he talked about with Shem. And then we have, on the other hand, Canaan. Okay, there's nothing that we see that shows us that Canaan actually served his brothers right away. Okay, there's, no, there's nothing that we see that all of a sudden Canaan became a servant and did everything that Shem um, and Japheth told them to do. In fact, what we do know and we see is that the nation spread apart, right? spread out. So the brothers came, and then they all kind of went and did their own thing. And so there's no proof that this happened and this was fulfilled. And you can think of, right, you can think of Noah like, oh, I just made this prophecy, and like, I'm not really seeing it play out. So there's nothing to show us that this happened right away. So this takes many, many years. How do we see this fulfilled? Well, much of Israel's history is a fulfillment of this. Okay, Ham. Okay, we have the enemies of God. On the other hand, we have Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we see these two coming together and coming into conflict constantly throughout the Old Testament. So what do we know about the descendants of Ham? Again, we already considered Babel and Nineveh, bad places. We, verse 14 Look with me. Verse 14 tells us, Patrusim, Kashluhim, from whom the Philistines, Philistines came. What do we know about the Philistines? Good things? Bad things? Not good things. Bad things. There's two specifically instances I want you to think about. The Philistines. You have 
um, Samson and you have King David, right? Two very famous instances in which the people of God actually fought the Philistines. The line of Shem fighting the fight of Canaan. And so you have Samson in the days of the judges where he delivered Israel from the hands of the Philistines and destroyed many of the Philistines. You have King David, again, David against Goliath, right? It was David, God's power, God delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So your Old Testament is playing this out. All of it is playing it out. Then you have the Canaanites, right? So that's Philistines. There's 15. You have the Canaanites. You have the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hivites. Who are these people? Well, we get glimpses of these as we keep walking through the Old Testament. Exodus 3.8 actually tells us that these are the people that occupied the, the promised land. So when God tells Abraham that he was going to send him to a land, these were the people that actually were living in the land. And so what God was actually doing is he's going to be removing the pe those people away from that land and making room for the people of God. They occupied the promised land and they stood in opposition to God's promise to Israel. Let's read Deuteronomy 20, 17. It should be on the screen. Um, and just hear the similarities, okay? We're talking about all these people groups. Just hear the similarities. This is what God tells Israel. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Again, hear the repetition. These are not just random people groups. God is commanding them to this place. So remember this when you're reading the Old Testament. This is all playing out as God said he would, as God said he would do it. These are people that are serving other gods, they're being unfaithful to God, and now they're under God's judgment. And God foresaw that even from the beginning, from Noah's time, when it was just Noah and his sons. So God was at work. God has been at work. Even in the dark days of Israel, when Israel was unfaithful to his Lord, and they walked in their own ways, God has always been at work orchestrating all of this to fulfill his promise. And that promise was to humble Canaan and to exalt Shem through centuries. And so we see this play out. How do we see this come to, be, come to be? We see this as eventually the people of God, Israel, overtake the promised land. They conquer the people and he, God gives them victory over the people of Ham. And then the people of Ham, the Canaanites, all of those people become servants to the people of Israel. Canaan shall be a servant to Shem. All of this happens as God foreshadows in, cha in, in chapter 9. All we have to do is remember Joshua 21, 43. Okay, when Joshua looks back about all the things he, God says that I have given you the whole land, all of the land I have given it to you. So you remember what actually happened. Joshua 24, 11 tells us, And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. Again, this is all God orchestrating this in his own amazing way. So why do I tell you this? Why do I tell you this and help you make these connections? Is it just so that you would be really impressed that, you know, I figured this out? No, it's far from that, okay? I'm, you would not believe how many times I've read my Bible and just, just probably like all of us, been like, well, I don't know what to do with that. On to chapter 11, I know what to do with Babel. Yeah, that's a good one. So it is far from that. Anything that I've learned has been taught to me. And so it's not that. It's, so am I telling you so that you would be um, intellectually stimulated? That's not it either. That's not it either. That falls way too low of the goal. I tell you for two reasons. Okay, why do I help you see these connections? First, I really do just want you to see the harmony in Scripture. 
Okay? The Bible is harmonizes itself. It is self-testifying. There's so much that you can see, and so I want you to treasure and love the Bible. Okay? There's so much that you can learn and grow as you study your scripture. So would you love and would you treasure your Bible? Would you not neglect it? Would you be the people that would actually treasure and make time to read your Bible and learn about God? Because there's so much that you can learn about God and about yourself. It is the only way that you know truly who God is. Secondly, I want, you to, I want to remind you of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is seen in this. So reflect on this. Think about this. God's judgments are almost rarely done on the spot. God often waits to act. Therefore, this is another call to wait on the Lord. Remember, God said that he was going to humble Canaan and exalt Shem. And we don't actually see this really play out until centuries afterwards when Israel takes over the promised land. So God calls us to wait on him. We may not always see the end of what he's doing. We may not see the full picture of it fully, but trust and know that God is at work. Wait on the Lord, whatever your season is. God will always do as he says. So think for yourself. What have you been waiting on the Lord for? What have you been waiting for? God to be just, righteous, to vindicate you? Haven't we as a church been praying for healing, right, for quite some time? Wait on the Lord, church. Haven't we been praying for a church building for years and years? Wait on the Lord, church. Hey, wait. Don't see, Don't stop. Even in our waiting, we are called to be the people, the type of people who don't lose heart, that continue to seek God, and even when his blessings are not seen yet, even in the now, even if you don't see the fulfillment of them all, trust and know that God has been at, who has been at work in Genesis 9 is the same God who's working now. Trust that he is good and he's just. So let me end with just a question for you to consider. How does the curse and the blessing of Noah actually affect you? Okay, you might say, well, that's a pretty neat connection you made. You know, that's, I, I can see how God is at work, and I can see the general up, like, outworkings of how God is faithful to his people, and he will act even when I don't see that he's acting. But what could this possibly have to do with me? Like, where do you fit into this? Let's look at our last verse here, verse 27 in chapter 9. The second part of the promise, right? We kind of neglected Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What is this about? Well, again, there's no evidence that this was fulfilled at all in the Old Testament. The Greeks, the Macedonians, the Gentiles, Japheth, you know, people from Japheth, you know, there's a separation. They went and did their own thing. People of God are out doing their own thing. And we see that separation, right, in the New Testament. There's always the Jews and the Greeks. There's a separation. There's no evidence that they ever came and lived in the same tents. They lived together as one people. That does not happen in the Old Testament. So what is this reference what is this reference to dwelling in the same tents? Well, this reference for us specifically, us Gentile people, we're, we're not part of the you know, line of Abraham. We're not Jewish. Us Gentiles, how can we be part of the people of God? 
The amazing thing is from the very beginning, right, God had a plan to bring people from all nations into himself. That there's no longer, it does no longer matter. It doesn't matter whether you are a Greek or a Jew, your race does not change the fact that you can come before God because it is about faith. And your standing with God depends not on who you are, but it depends on faith in the Jesus, in Jesus, the God who can save you. And so this reference looks forward to the day when the Gentiles would actually be engrafted and brought into God's kingdom, God's family, along with the Jews. Okay, God chose this very special possession for himself, the Jews, the people of Abraham. But then he said, very clearly in Romans, right? In Romans 11, we see that God has actually brought into his family people from all sorts of nations. And so from here, Genesis 9 is very clear that it's looking forward to something, right? And that was not clear then, but it is now clear to us that it is looking to the days when the, when the people of Japheth and the people of Shem would actually be able to live together under the same family, in the same tent, as family under God. So this affects you because God, church, God had a plan from the beginning to bring you into his family. God didn't have to have a second plan later, be like, how am I going to bring all these other people to myself? No, from Genesis 9 we know God knew that he was going to bring people from all the nations to worship him, to be a part of his family. He thought of you. If you only would turn to God and have faith and believe that Jesus is your Savior, that there's nothing that you can do. There's, that in your own lineage, in your own heart, all you can do is separate yourself from God, from the people of God. But that God actually had to come himself and bring you near. God is actually bringing you and grafting you into his family. So God is at work, church. See this. God, all of history is playing out to see God bringing a people for himself. And that really applies to you to adopt you into this family and to make you his for all eternity. So as we pray, I want you to wait on the Lord. Okay, wait. He is acting. He is active. He has not deserted you. And trust in him, church. Would you trust him? Because he is not done working in you. Let's pray. Most Heavenly Father, we lift your name high. We are so thankful for the ways in which you work. Lord, your ways clearly are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your plans are better than our plans. And so, Father, would you forgive us for um, lowering your plans, for uh, making it seem, Lord, like it is about us and about us alone. But, Father, would you take our eyes off of ourselves. May we look, may we take ten looks to Christ. His perfect work on the cross. God, that we would see your plan of salvation from the beginning and that we would exalt you and worship you. And walk humbly, Lord, waiting on you. Would you be with us and would you strengthen us? Lord, even in ceaseless waiting and suffering and in pain, would, you be, would we be the kind of people, Lord, that trust you and have faith, even if it seems like you are far, that we know that you're working. So we ask that you'd be with us and you'd help us. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.